Mind, Crime, Liberty Show, with from Dobson and him, Tim Patton. Today we're joined by Rick Story to discuss what causes the decline of civilizations. I was uh, watching one of um, Rick's videos on his uh, own YouTube channel, which was on uh, the what causes the decline of civilizations. And uh, I kind of thought, well, let's get him on to talk about it. So, Rick, what causes the decline of civilizations? Well, and the rise, for that matter, but predominantly the decline. I knew we were going to start with the big questions with them. Um, what causes the rise of civilizations? Well, we could start with when a nomad group uh, encounters a, a peasant group. Uh, typically now, academic literature tends to think that this um, this interplay between these two different kinds of groups is when you get the formation of, well, yes, OK, an empire, but more specifically, you might say a civilization. It's when you have a nomadic group forming an aristocracy over a peasantry that you have a warrior class forming over the um, I don't want to say the working class, but um, I think everyone knows what I mean when I say that the, the, the peasants really. Now, the the relationship is not necessarily so authoritarian. Um, actually, when we see empires forming, it tends to be that these two groups find each other mutually beneficial. And they find the combining of forces and intermarriage to be, um, you know, as, as I say, beneficial over time. The warrior class, obviously, um, being nomadic, they have superior weapons which they can carry around with them. They have cattle and horses, so they're much more mobile because of their diet and, you know, maybe sort of evolutionary reasons. Uh, they, they tend to be, you know, bigger, they're, they're, they're just more dominant figures. They, they've lived a very different life, whereas the peasantry tends to have um, less of a meat based diet. Um, and, you know, they're, they're, they're stuck to the land, they're anchored to the land. And so in terms of what they can accomplish militarily, it, it's always going to be it's always going to be lesser than you know what the, the nomads can accomplish. So these two groups um, finding mutual benefit, you know, the nomads finding the um, variety and continual source of supplies that come from um, the peasantry. That's obviously of great benefit to them over time. Certainly, it's much more useful than just raiding a village and killing everyone there. Then, you know, you can't continue to have a relationship with these people. You know, you can't year after year continue to uh, benefit from being friendly with them. Um, and also the, um, you know, the, the peasants find this, you know, this, this band of nomads um, to be useful, uh, not just for uh, deterring, um, you know, marauders, you know, maybe more, you know, malevolent uh, groups that might be roaming, um, but also they're, they're quite useful as a third party for settling disputes. And so this is where, you know, at a much later stage, you might have, say, a king and his court, you know, um, uh, with its route around the country and and uh, holding court in different places in order to settle disputes. Um, 
So, you know, that's a really truncated version, but that's basically how what we might call, you know, an empire or the beginnings of a specific identifiable civilization might actually form. Um, in terms of what causes their decline, I think we need to really look at the whole curve. So we need to look at how empires then, you know, rise to and to what kind of apex, you know, in order to then determine what's the opposite of that. Um, so it, it seems to be um, very much like the meme that everyone is quite familiar with now of, you know, hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times and good times create weak men and then weak men create the hard times. And so the cycle goes on. Um, you know, we might think of the hard times creating the strong men as being that sort of beginning stage of a civilization where, um, it, you know, these these very strong nomads forming a warrior class. Um, you know, the reason they're so tough is because, you know, they have a lot of competition uh, with other nomad groups um, and also within uh, the group itself. Um, they tend to be very patriarchal societies and physical dexterity and strength tends to be of great importance uh, to them. You know, you have to, um, you know, be, be an archer as well as, you know, um, be good with a sword or some kind of handheld um, weapon. You have to, uh, you know, master um, horse riding. Uh, particularly in battle, you know, you need to be able to shoot arrows on horseback, uh, which is, you know, remarkably difficult, requires a lot of strength. Um, th th that sort of thing. So, th so these are the strong men, if you like, that, that form. And then, uh, you know, they, they, in order to then have some uh, continuity um, within the, you know, the larger territory that they uh, then protect if you like and, you know that that's where we get our word territory from it's a roman word the territorium uh, literally this is a a locality in which they terrify um, um, competition uh, away for that job and so um, this uh, this class this group of strong men if you like they then have a this territory within which there is relative peace and and then within that territory uh the, the smaller like peasant groups um and uh, you know they're able to not just trade amongst themselves uh, in peace but then they can trade with neighboring villages neighboring towns you can then get the formation of um cities uh an acropolis if you like and um it, you know, this is when we start to get uh, merchants and more of a, a city class of people that we might be more familiar with. You know, we, we start to then get an actual bourgeois uh, people um, who are then capable of, you know, what can we say, you know, higher order um, uh, jobs and things. Um, and, and so then we, we really start to get in the flowering of this this civilization. Th these are what we might say then the good times created by the strong men. You have a territory and within that territory there is peace. 
Now, maybe this might form an empire. So, you know, the territory that this group, um, you know, have have authority within, uh, you know, they, they might exercise. So they exercise an imperium, if you like. It, it, it expands, um, you know, perhaps as far as it can go. And then you have an empire. Now, uh, you know, this, you know, this will be then, if you like, the apex, you know, they, they, they've reached the furthermost point, you know, the, the empire expands, you know, to its greatest, greatest extent. And um, within that, um, the, the, the competition turns from looking outwards to outward, you know, competition, other empires and other groups who are antagonistic towards you. And then the competition starts to turn inward. Well, in what in, in what way can it turn inward? Do people start uh, attacking each other militarily? Well, I mean, that can happen. You, you might have a coup or something like that. Um, but typically, instead of, you know, great uh, civil wars and things like that, the competition tends to be an economic one. Um, you know, trade becomes the order of the day. And uh, economic concerns within this peaceful territorium um, become, you know, the, 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 you know, the what can I say, the, the only vector remaining uh, through which there's there's competition. Um, and so then we start to get to the point where good times create weak men. Now, there are um, a couple of books I found interesting, and these are the ones I mentioned in, in my video. Uh, they're both called The Fate of Empires, both written by British men. Uh, one is Sir John Glubb and the other one is Arthur John Hubbard, who was a doctor. Uh, they were both uh, living in the twilight of the British Empire. And uh, they both independently wrote you know, these two um, essay slash booklets. And um, they both independently <laughs> arrived at the same title for their book. And they also arrived at very, very similar conclusions. Both of them were looking at empire's past, given the historical data that they had at the time. And uh, they, both of them focused especially on what causes empires to decline and uh, what does that look like? And, um, you know, it, it, what, what can um, prevent the collapse of an empire. That was what they were most concerned with. Uh, obviously, they didn't want to see the the collapse of the British Empire, and so they were concerned with uh, identifying the patterns of what collapse looks like and how they can prevent it. Now, uh, the conclusion they came to was, um, as um, economic competition within the group, within the, the empire, within a, a civilization, as that becomes much more important, you will see uh, an abandonment of the public uh, religion. Uh, you will see um, greater concern with uh, status signaling in economic terms. You know, so, you know, they might look around, let's say, at uh, uh, the, the collapsing West and see, you know, people having massive um louis vuitton symbols on their handbags and and you know gucci written in huge letters on someone's actually rather cheap looking jumper and they might think oh this this makes perfect sense these are big uh, status signals you know look i can afford a gucci jumper 
Um, symbols much different from military, uh, from distinguishing by your military strength. Yeah, Why is that relevantly different. But, but that's that's a really good point, Sullivan, because one of the other things uh, they look at is um, who are the heroes? Who are the heroes, and what are the values? of a collapsing civilization. So there's two sides to this. On the one hand, you'll have moralizing about how um, heroes of the former age, who are obviously very martial figures, they will be kings and conquerors, uh, how you know morally detestable uh, they are now and how we are uh, you know, so much more morally evolved now that we can actually um, you know, have some distance from these people and we can reflect on what's so bad about them and how we would do things differently. Um, and obviously the tearing down of statues of, you know, uh, former heroes, you know, this is nothing new. Um, you know, the tearing down of statues across the West, um, they would see, you know, nothing strange about this at all. It would make perfect sense according to their observations. Um, and so on the other side, well, what, well, what are the things that are positively enforced? And it would be, you know, having more money, um, you know, the sort of you you do you attitude. Um, and so the, the, the people who then become the idols of that uh, collapsing civilization would be um, famous artists and uh, poets, singers, uh, dancers. Uh, you know, so more on the sort of the arts side of thing, uh, and their voices, of course, would become louder. Uh, women too would have a, a a more political role and a a, a greater say in um, you know what public policy should be. Um, you know, albeit maybe not to the extent that we've seen in the West more recently, uh, but but that's debatable, I suppose. Um, and so um, basically those who are um, economically successful and more entertaining, uh, those would then become the idols. And so what would the value be? Well, the values become much more um, selfish is, you know, perhaps too vague of a term. But certainly um, what these two authors seem to observe um, and, and others, you know, more recently who have studied the collapses of civilization is people tend to become more individualistic. So it seems that there is. Uh, what do you mean by individualistic? You were saying selfish was yes. vague. I think individualistic is even more vague. Equally vague. Well, um, um, what, what does that mean? Because um, you can. It depends what you mean, because I mean, you could because it's would you say if it was the case that you have you you have somebody who held the view that what you need to do is to maximize individual human flourishing as an individual, but that that flourishing would only take place in the context of a uh, of a um, of a coherent and stable social order. Uh, would that be an individualist by your use of the term? individualist and individualist or individualistic well i don't think it's so much that um you know one might be um concerned with you know individual well-being uh, of course you know aristotle he you know he was all about the you know the eudaimonia so you know the the, the individual person um 
you know, seeking and you know, growing to understand more and more what the better life would be for themselves. Um, but, you know, as you say, um, he was also then the first to say that uh, this is uh, this is actually achieved and this is actually uh, nourished and encouraged to grow within groups, you know, starting with the family um, and then going up to the, the polis, uh, the, the Greek city state as he would have seen it. Um, and, you know, in the medieval period, we see that continued um, where, uh, you know, of course, you know, the individual Christian soul is, um, you know, it's, it's totally recognised, you know, uh, following St. Augustine, you know, we have, you know, very much uh, the, the the subject, you know, the Western individual. And, and this is a you know, great concern in legal matters. Uh, but, you know, nevertheless, to the, to the medieval mind or in the medieval world, um, the, the, the individual and his his rights were totally tied up with his personhood. And that was something that was um, identified and achieved within the small groups. So within the family, within the guild, within, you know, various, you know, smaller order uh, groups that, that, you know, a person would have been part of. Um, so, it, you know, it's, it's not necessarily, oh, um, people start caring about individual people or, um, you know, they start believing that individual people um, you know, have private property, you know, should have private property or or that they have certain rights. You know, it, it's not that. It's more that um, what Swithin, perhaps you or Tim, perhaps you can remember the author of a book. Their name escapes me at the moment, but it was called Bowling Alone. And I just cannot remember the name of the sociologist who wrote that. Putnam, uh, I believe. Thank you. Yes. So uh, what so what he observed uh, was in America, um, you know, particularly as um, um, uh, cities and, you know, uh, other places in America become more, more perhaps become more pluralistic um, in, you know, their values and religions and that sort of thing. People tend to be more distrusting of others and they tend to engage much less with uh, public institutions um and obviously you know thus the the title bowling alone um he looks at how you know we, we we've gone from let's say a situation like 1950s america uh where you know people you know seem to be much more involved in in public affairs and you know even if this is something that they are themselves organizing it's not like a government thing um but you know people uh have distanced themselves from that to the point that uh, you know they, they don't have friends outside of work outside of their family um you know maybe they go to a cafe and they might know the person at the at the at the desk but you know they don't um they're not a part of some institution outside of so, that. So is so is your claim then? So back to individualism then. Is it is it not a case that it's more individualistic, but rather a, the decline is because of a lack of become a lower trust society and therefore becomes less coherent? Is that the main claim? And then the individualism, however so defined, is a is a means by which the high trust society becomes a lower trust society. Or am I misunderstanding you? 
Well, I think it's all of those things. I think the the well, which comes first, the or the well, at the same time. In terms of um, so the, the individualism of and, and the trust. Um, yes. Because it would seem it would seem clear that a, a, a society will slowly decline insofar as the trust level goes down. I think that's that's pretty much. I mean, I don't think that'd be hugely controversial. The question is how it would take place. Um, so what I'm asking is, does the so in, according to the theories of Glove and the other guy, I can't remember his name, um, is it that um, somehow individualism so defined? Um, appears which then erodes social trust or is it that the trust dissipates for another reason and because the trust dissipates people turn in on themselves or do they happen both at the same time and if so what's the relationship i think i think it's all part of the same process really i think the thing that we're calling individualism is the you know the erosion of those of those institutions and the changing of the mindset of the people um, I mean, which I would I would look at and I, I would see is it seems to be just a natural process. This just seems to be how humans uh, behave when their um, civilization is, uh, you know, the values of the civilization are slowly turning. So and which, the, which public sorry, which public institutions in all these cases are the ones that are necessary to have? high sort of social status for which people will care and will attempt to maintain which you need which then to maintain civilization at its height which are then um disregarded and then decrease in their um their, their social status and importance and care by the community such that the community then goes into decline well i would agree with uh, one of these two authors um, I mean, both of them say this, actually, but one of them puts a special um, focus on this, uh, especially in one of the chapters of the booklet. Um, I think that it is the erosion of the religious values within the society. Now, the reason I think that is because um, in order for the civilization to grow in the first place, uh, there has to be um, a concern, a motive which transcends, you know, the individual's concern. If we're going to make sacrifices for future generations and, you know, it may be, you know, something that we are not going to ourselves experience the, the fruits of, you know, we're not going to see this, you know, so, you know, what, what would an example be? Maybe uh, the construction of a cathedral that may take place over generations, um, you know, money and uh, time, you know, various efforts and sacrifices may go into that, um, knowing that uh, you will not yourself see the finished product in your lifetime, but knowing that, you know, perhaps your great grandchildren or your grandchild or whatever may may then you know see um so you know what what brings you you know out of your more immediate concerns within your own lifetime you know and the competition for resources and that sort of thing that you will you know have to experience in order to get on in your life well um you know for arthur john hubbard uh, he called it the religious motive and so he was looking at for instance 
um, through Latin Christendom in the Middle Ages, or for instance, uh, you know, um, China, um, across the, the passing of various dynasties. Well, what was the continuity which prevented the whole civilization from entirely collapsing and dissolving? And he said, well, it, it's this religious motive. And so it seems to be that as a civilization is is growing, um, especially for you know the the strong men who are creating this civilization, creating the good times, um, you know they they need to have uh, you know a shared ideology, they need to have shared objective values, um, which are going to you know encourage them in their you know their martial endeavors. You know, and they'll be making tremendous sacrifices. You know, but probably sacrificing their lives. Um, so, you know, well, what is bringing them together? What's what's the cohesion that's making these men, um, you know, fight for the same project and to do so uh, across time, you know, to pass the mantle? And so Hubbard said, you know, this is it seems to be the religious motive. Um, and, you know, I, I would agree that's what it seems to be. Um, and so as, uh, you know, moneyed concerns start to overtake or, or seemingly to become, you know, more important um, in a civilization where everything is easy, um, you know, relatively you have a very high quality of life. You don't have to really sacrifice a huge amount for that. Um, and actually even. Um, and we're starting to see this more in, in Western countries. In my experience, I've seen this more with uh, very wealthy families from across Asia. Um, it, it starts to become even a status signal uh, if you can afford to spoil your child. You know, if you can afford to have your child you know, not really work very hard, you know, want for nothing, not to do any chores. Um, they have whatever they want, you know, the most expensive things and, you know, it's meaningless to them because they can have it at the drop of a hat. Um, to, to, to be able to raise a child in that way itself becomes a status signal. Um, and, you know, there's nothing new about that. Um, you know, as, you know, especially the wealthier classes uh, become more that way, um, and as you know, people who just you know have lots of cash to flash, and you know they're living this very, they're living very luxurious lives with tremendous ease. As that starts to become more valuable, or of higher status, and of you know, um, you know, as that becomes more morally permissible in a civilization, um, you know, the, the entropic nature of, of humans is such that um, you know more and more people will start to care less about the, um, the, the the religion and all of those sacrificial values which once made the empire or the civilization or whatever it is great. Let me interrupt here. Speaking of like ends and sacrifices, so so uh, what would you say is the end of the sacrifice. So like take our current society, what you're describing about the, which is, I 
somewhat witness this firsthand too. We're describing somewhat in Asia and as well as Western Europe, United States, as people um, being very affluent and sort of not having to work very hard. Isn't that in a sense like I, I once emailed um, there's, a, there's a church event I occasionally involve myself with. I once emailed the guy, emailed the guy, I wrote an email, and it wasn't that he was being a Marxist Christian, but I was saying like, what's the purpose of going to school? Like, what's the purpose of working is to acquire resources. And again, school, again, in the modern American context, like if you want to criticize, like I, I imagine it's European content. Nietzsche also pointing this out is that like the real purpose of education is for to increase your own power. Um, that like that's like the formal that's like that ends up being the, you know, people go to school so they can make more money or they can join the bureaucracy or they can join. Uh, now, again, I don't really per se see anything reason wrong with that i mean that doesn't argue that education is not part of the public good um but what would you say the end of all these um um sacrifices because you, you get this idea well well we'll work harder so our kids are better off and you, i mean i was just i happened to have the tv on at one uh at, i saw cnbc had a show i think undercover boss and they were just profiling this guy who was working 75 hours a week and um um he was doing it for his kids he wanted his kids to have a nice life. Okay, that's a nice reason. But what about the kids? Like, you know, should the kids, you know, should he actually work less? And uh, uh, now you, you can always, of course, make, you know, pure market and pure cap, uh, pure Marxist and pure market critiques. Well, he wouldn't have to work as hard if such and such exploitation happened. And that's probably true. Um, but even so, there is the idea that you work less to make, like, you work less hard now, so you're, you work hard now, so your kids. But what do you do about the next generation? Then isn't that isn't that just an entropic process where no one really answers um, what what there is to done? It's just you know we're going to sacrifice things, sacrifice them for what? Like in the Christian context, and this I think Christianity has a sort of it reminds me not to start you to reminds me of the uh, the Death Star. It has a sort of a problem in there deep inside of it where it, it, its relationship to earthly wealth and power is always one that's rather tenuous here to speak I, that would be my problem like what do you sacrifice it toward it like a christian good is not really a material good and an empire is a material good um so i i'm, I'm in the context of christianity i think it's it, empires is, is always uh which which i would think is your answer to the you know what do you sacrifice for that, that would, I think, be your answer if I'm if I'm guessing is correct. Um, but how how do you square that problem? It seems like internal to it, there is this um, problem at its core. Like like people obviously aren't as Christian as they used to be, for better or for worse. Um, um, but in earlier times, people were more Christian. They actually fought over what Christianity meant. So like in like the 1930s, for example, you get super Protestants who very much believe, but what they, but like Wilson, Wilbur Wilson, for example, I don't have any reason, maybe, maybe, maybe he was a secret atheist, but he was a Presbyterian trained seminary, I think. So, so there's always, there's always a thing like deep inside of Christianity, there's, if you answer the sacrifice, what do you sacrifice for? I don't know. I don't, I don't have an easy answer for that question. I, I, uh, and Asia is becoming more Christianized too. So I suspect that those parents would uh, end up having the same problems or same empires if it ever, ever did arise. Well, what do you make of that comment, Rick? Like, what what would you say the sacrifice for? It just seems like it's a entropic process. Yeah, Sorry I for the rambling question. 
Not at all. I think that's I, I think you just hit on the crux of the whole thing, Tim, because uh, I mean, I, I actually think that is the pressing question of our time, especially for, um, I would say, young um, European men or, you know, what can you say that like white men as well? You know, young American, Western, young Western men who have tremendously high uh, suicide rates, we should note. Um, and, it, and it seems, you know, the society around them increasingly um, despises them, associates them with, you know, past warmongering and, and, and all this sort of thing. Um, you know, and they're supposed to still work and pay taxes, what, to, to this society? Well, why? Why? And um, I saw an article recently, I can't remember where it was perhaps it was something like the guardian i, I can't remember now but it, it was sort of praising young people for uh, asking this exact question for saying well what is the point in working is it young people are increasingly not working so hard in their jobs and you know looking for more time off and all of this sort of thing and they were seeing this as a good thing I, I see this as a terribly bad thing, not in the sense that they are, you know, trying to attain more fairness for themselves as workers and not to be exploited or something like that. But because what this is saying is, uh, you know, young people uh, don't see the point. They don't see any larger project which they are really a part of. What is it all about? Is it all about money? Well, you know, the example you know, you gave Tim of, um, you know, the person who's working really, really hard for their family, but hardly any, hardly spending any time with their family. Um, you know, well, just working purely for money. Uh, I mean, is that is that the reason you're making that? Well, it's money. Well, you know, money. I'm sorry, doesn't solve all problems. You know, you're okay. Let me say, you work hard, work really, really, really hard. Um, throw loads of cash at your children um, and then somebody gets cancer. Now, what do you do? I mean, the reason I think the, you know, focusing on really, we come back to the question of what is the good life? And for me, this is a spiritual question. And that's not something ethereal. You know, we, we really we're just talking about objective values you know things like truth things like goodness things like beauty um you know which all, we all you know behave as though those things exist um you know, so, so what is a beautiful life what does a you know what does a beautiful family life look like um you know the, the, these these questions are not too abstract i think they're fundamentally important and so you know in studies they've done um People at the end of their lives, they're asked, what are your regrets? I think number one was um, working more than I needed to and not spending enough time with my family. So um, growing the souls of your children, you know, growing your children so that they have this inner life, which is very strong. So when the storm does hit, you know, when somebody does get cancer, they have this inner strength to continue and to carry on and to and to do the same and you know to 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 create 
a more beautiful and a happier family life themselves um, to be, you know, really enriching and um, for, for all the people in your life, your friends, your family, your neighbours, you know, to, to help them to grow and to have this this greater inner strength and you know really you know what what could it be you know it's what what is the good life you know why are we making sacrifices what's it all for um i I suppose it's you know for us not you know perhaps first and foremost as individuals to be strong enough to weather the storms um and you know after that um it would be to um you know, that, that then have so much strength uh, that you're then able to be a source of encouragement um, for your loved ones, you know, for those around you. Um, and, you know, maybe even then to develop even more relationships in your life and to, um, you know, really become a, a pillar of your community, as, as we used to say. Um, and you know, in in that sense, I mean, that's what a civilization is. I mean, it's all these these um, you know strong men, if you like, creating good times. Um, what I what I'm not following is why is that something that's more likely to take place after you get to a certain level of economic um, ability? Because um, you could you could imagine someone worked too much of being in the warrior class and. Uh, let's suppose in the classic warrior class situation, maybe have polygamy from some of the higher status warriors who wouldn't spend any time with their children at all. Um, and they didn't spend their time with their family because they were fighting. Um, uh, is it that, are there other things that we haven't mentioned which are important when it comes to the overall uh, value system of the society once it reaches a certain economic level, within it, economic level within its arc, not absolute economic level? Um, because that would make comparisons between times more difficult. Um, is what is it? Is 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 it that for some reason it's more likely that you will neglect familial obligations when the economy gets so high up, or is it other values that you don't hold which are relevant which we haven't mentioned? So related to that is what sacrifices would the hard men make which the relatively softer men of the mercantile class wouldn't make which would be required to maintain the civilization i realize that's a number of questions in one but those are the thoughts that were going through my head well i mean i i think in terms of you know the the, the nomads marauding around and killing people and you know maybe not not really having much of what we would recognize to be a stable family structure um you know i i see that as being sort of pre-economic in a certain sense you know if we talk about uh, civilization uh, the nomads by themselves are not really forming the civilization it's when they have this relationship with this very different sort of community you know the peasants the farmers um you know the sort of um stationary if you like workers um that's that's true let's let's suppose it was the peasantry at that time why would, would they be more likely to to build a civilization with their children or would they um um be working loads of hours and not spending with the time or was it just be or is it, or is it a fact of urbanization that you don't deal with your family as much as you would do in a more agricultural less urban society is, is that a fact here that's behind a lot of stuff we haven't mentioned well i i think that you know if you're 
living you know some sort of you know pre-agricultural revolution you know really hard graft barely surviving existence you know yeah i mean maybe the what we might identify as the family structure in that that group might be abysmal uh, you know in in our according to our standards but um yeah i mean, i i think that as um you have these two different groups come together this starts to form you know this starts to create more dynamic relationships and you, you know the this kind of gives life or gives birth to um you know something altogether different so that you can have you know all, all kinds of different groups performing different roles like different organs within an organism um and you know they all have some sort of mutual benefit and then what the the overall benefit of this would be and again you know this, this goes back to aristotle i suppose and, and plato the overall benefit uh, there is then you you know you start to have a a proper economy and what does economy mean economy obviously that, that you know that's the ancient greek word for household and uh you know, I see that as being very significant because what that means then is now you have a sort of seed bed. Now you have, um, you, you know, the, the the proper institutions and everything in place um, for uh, healthy, flourishing families um, to prosper. And you have a situation where, um, you know, children can be given this proper instruction so that their higher order needs um you know there's more abstract needs you know things that transcend yourself and make you really feel um a part of something greater and um you know so you're you're really accomplishing something um that you know transcends you and, and will stand the test of time um you know as well as those things which and again you know the very largest studies on human happiness have shown that um you know good relationships with you know a variety of people you know f friends neighbors family uh, these those things are what people ultimately find the most fulfilling by far and so these things now are able to come into place um uh, you know and it is for that reason that aristotle went so far as to say that um the polis has priority before the family now what what he means by that is not and this is a misconception common one that you know aristotle was saying the polis kind of pre-exists the family he wasn't saying that at all that would be really un-aristotelian of him um what he's saying is that um because it's only once you start to get to that level where all those things are in place and you know real families start to come into place and the instruction of children and their inner spiritual growth starts to become um uh you know a very real possibility uh that's what makes the um polis of a priority in terms of actually being able to um achieve the the, the betterment of people's lives and actually being able to achieve uh, the good life and and the common good so um so go on, Tim. 
Wouldn't you say though that the um, and this sort of I have this sort of problem here. Wouldn't you say the uh, betterment is itself ends up being in practice just a material betterment, where it ends up being those as you identify those families who view it as a status that their kids don't have to work. Isn't that like isn't that the isn't that the sort of quote unquote goal? And actually, again, Marxists. What's interesting about old school Marxists is this was more or less the Marxist dream of a kind. And David Bentley Hart would who's no friend of capitalism um, and his first things essays on this um, would point that out as well as that the Marxist goal is a society where um, in a sense, we're all hyper privileged consumers where, you know, you, you have the, again, and I, I'm like, if, if we can divine robots and economic systems to, to, to alleviate onerous labor, I don't really see any reason against that explicitly, but I do think people enjoy working somewhat anyway. So Maybe that explains some why people like to work. So there is sort of problems of workaholicism and so forth. Um, so like, you know, like the, the lying down movement, I'm, you know, that, that could just be a rational choice. Uh, uh, it's like, well, again, it seems like the ends, even the ends of an empire just seem to be like, well, you know, having a gold plated bathroom and a bunch of servants. Uh, now, again, you can have electronic or you have motorized servants. I know John Stuart Mill is probably correct that, no labor saving device save any labor, but I that seems to be the at least the dream that people are sacrificing toward is some sort of uh what what would you be argument against that, Rick? Like isn't 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 it just a just another material um isn't that just another material paradise, Rick? Anything to say? Well, so, I mean, Arthur John Hubbard's argument is not that, hey, you know, if we were just all a bit more religious, then, you know, that there wouldn't be these sort of turns in civilization where people start to, you know, become more interested in money and, you know, they become bored of, um, you know, all that sacrifice stuff. Sounds like so much hard work. Um, it, 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 for him, it's more that, where you have um, a, a solid bedrock of the religious motive within your civilization, these um, these turns don't lead then to a complete dissolution of the civilization, but they become more just a sort of winter that the civilization goes through and then things pick up again. Um, so, I mean, do, do I see, you know, the gold plated bathtub as just like an inevitable um end for civilizations as people start to think well hey why am i working i'm working just for more money so i can have more uh, material pleasures um you know I, I i think you know given human nature i think that um you, you know as maybe things improve economically that kind of thing um you know that's almost you know i don't want to discount human agency here um, because I'm not a hard determinist, but um, you know, it it, do, it does seem like okay. I guess people are probably going to start thinking that way and and just you know seeking more comfort if you like. Um, but then you know I I think you you know there there are things that can be done in a society. I think that there are. Um, you know, institutions that can come about where men will encourage more certain behaviours in each other. 
Um, so, for instance, you know, I mean, nothing will cause, you know, a man to learn how to change the tyre on his own car than being shamed by other men, you know, and being made to feel, you know, inadequate, that sort of thing. You know, you'll, you know, again, you know, he, he may probably then start to change his behaviours and, and learn how to do something like that. You know, now imagine that, um, you know, the the, the the places he frequents and the friendship groups that he's in and the institutions he's a part of, that sort of thing. Um, you, you know, everywhere he goes, you know, he'll be encountering men where all the other guys are just expecting of the other men that they will, you know, have a certain level of what they would deem to be masculinity, which may include you mow your own lawn, you change the tyre on your own car, um, you know, you're capable of doing certain things for yourself and you're not, you know, then it would be seen as a sign of weakness to just um, palm it off to some other uh, factor in, in the market, um, you know, because it, at that point it would just be seen as, as, as being uh, weak and, you know, what the overall process would be then, you know, if everyone's doing that for every little thing, is we become over-specialised and we become um, unable to do, just unable to do certain things for ourselves. And so we become hopelessly dependent um, on on others for things, um, you know, by which point, you know, we've probably got uh, a tremendous amount of gun control. And we can't even defend ourselves and we would expect you know, the police to come or, you know, we, we wouldn't have some kind of neighbourhood watch where we're, you know, really a part of these things and we're, um, you know, in an integral part of the organisation of defending our neighbourhood even, you know, heaven forbid, uh, you know, we just have insurance and and, and that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, religion, uh, institutions within the society being a part of you know, a proper order of subsidiarity in the society where, you know, we, we, we're organised and we, you know, we, we're holding each other accountable, you know, in a personal way. This doesn't have to be authoritarian. Uh, but I think that those things are absolutely essential um, for staving off uh, civilizational collapse. And I think it's obvious, frankly. So what... Um, values would you say are the most important? Uh, maybe one, two, three, a small number. Which ones do you think are the most important that a the strong men would hold as a value, that the weak men in the mercantile times wouldn't hold? And if they were to reverse this, this would then maybe not reverse the collapse, but at least prevent it from going very quickly. Um, my answer is. I'm going to try and make my answer not too biased because, um, you know, as you know, I'm a Catholic and so, you know, I have my I have my beliefs. But um, I would say, um, you know, public attendance of public, you know, religious uh, rituals and rites um, is you know a, a kind of, almost a, you know a requirement um it's it's to say the very least frowned upon to not be attending those things so public religion is uh maybe number one 
Um, number two, I would say, is uh, traditional family values. I think everyone knows exactly what I mean by that. If they say they don't, I think they're lying. Um, I, 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 you know, it, it is just a universal thing uh, where, you know, women are the wife and they look after the children. Uh, I'm not saying this to offend anyone. I'm saying it because it, it's just, uh, you know, a sociological fact. Um, it, it's so exceptionally rare where, where there are exceptions to this that it, it's hardly even worth mentioning. Um, and, and the men are the ones that um, uh, make the sacrifices for the family outside of the household. Um, and um, they... Uh, are the the ultimate uh, judge and decision maker um, for you know any major decisions for the family. Um, yes, uh, so I, I think that's it. Obviously, um, you know we, we did a whole other show on this, didn't we? You know, I I, I would see marriage, uh, you know, traditional marriage as being uh, bound up with that that kind of family value, which I don't think is too vague at all, really. Um, and I, I mean, I think just getting those two right for a start would be fantastic. But if I was to say a, a third one, I think that men need to have uh, men only, um, not just spaces, but uh, institutions. And preferably they would be um, ones which were more martial in character. So, I mean, for instance, you know, I love the fact that Switzerland um, has these sort of militia groups, but but they are, you know, they are official. They are legitimately the militia groups for um, for the country. Um, you know, I, 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 I don't see that as being a bad thing. I, I see having a culture that, you know, views um, the men in society that way is a very healthy thing and has a very healthy understanding of what a sustainable uh, civilization uh, looks like. So uh, perhaps, you know, if I can put that in just a few words, um, a sort of uh, male only, um, preferably um, uh, militia oriented um, groups uh, within the within the society. No, that's interesting. So, um, would then, how does the mercantile times diminish those? Is it that they don't see as much value in them because they're more independent, economically independent, and so don't require, say, everybody else in the same way of public religious observance? Obviously, when it comes to militia, you can outsource it well i mean well, well typically it's the case that the centralized state authorities have their own army because they're more loyal to the leaders rather than to the local communities so I, I would agree with you on i mean that can happen in multiple places but how how, how does the decline of those things tie in with increased affluence yes i mean i mean it is pretty much just that is you know money provides this illusion that um you know, you, you can do anything. Whereas, you know, exactly as you said, Swithin, you know, th then if you start saying, oh, well, I can start outsour outsourcing some of this stuff, 
um, you then start outsourcing things that you should probably be accepting personal responsibility for. Um, you know, because the, the outsourcing of it, it, it sets various bad trends, which then lead to less of a, a public life, less, less fewer institutions within the society. Um, and, you know, people then start taking less and less of a, an active role in, you know, the public religion, to say the least. Um, until, you know, the, all the relationships in your life become um, business transactions rather than, you know, personal ones, favours, you know, th things that are very human and very um, organic, you might say. Um, so, so, yeah, so I'd say, yeah, money makes this illusion where you, you, you think you can relinquish responsibilities for things without any consequence but there are larger more um you know civilization wide if you like consequences with men especially doing that so my last question then we come up to an hour um related to this is what type of sacrifice would the hard man make which keeps civilization going the the man of the mercantile times is less likely to make you mentioned sacrifice multiple times what type of sacrifices or put it another way if you were to pick the most important sacrifices that they wouldn't make what wouldn't they make and uh, yeah that's it the most important sacrifice that a a strong man might make um yeah. well i i mean i i suppose it perhaps it might relate to you know not not being a philanderer or something like that you know so being being a family man um devoted I mean, okay look at the you know look at the italian mafia for instance um you, you know it seems like a cliche but i think it is so for for a reason um you know they might still be italian men and so they might still have you know serious problems with their libido um and you, you know they may even have an affair or or five and um but nevertheless what is expected of them and what indeed they would probably be expecting of all the men in society especially within their own little honor group um is that they would you know ultimately uh, be devoted to um you know protecting their wife and their children and you know g giving them instruction so that their their children, whether it's sons or daughters, might also grow up to um, be strong like them. What makes them so strong? Well, I mean, they're still expected to, um, you know, uh, give nods to the public religion um, and to, uh, in their own special way, be um, <laughs> upholding the the values of of that religion um and you know they're expected uh, they expect of men to have an attitude of being you know defensive towards the women and the children you know that, that is the greatest sin uh, you could possibly make is to to harm uh, women and children or you know to even let them see the violence that maybe they engage in uh with other men in their um you know their 
their side dealings. Um, you know, and so I, I, I think it's that, you know, the greatest sacrifice a man makes is to become a, uh, um, at least, at the very least, outwardly, publicly um, religious figure. Uh, maybe not religious figure, I'm, I'm, I misspoke there, but um, they're, they're expected to uphold the public religion, let's say, and um, they're expected to be devoted um, to their family alone, certainly, you know, economically speaking, but also in terms of the spiritual instruction. They're expected to be the sort of, uh, um, you know, uh, hopefully, you know, as physically strong as, uh, you know, they, they, they could be, and they are a spiritual instructor in their home. Um, I think that's why, for instance, you know, a show like The Sopranos have become so interesting because, um, you know, Tony Soprano is living in a time when really he's not expected to do any of these things anywhere other than, you know, maybe slightly so within his his little group. And so it's like, well, what what purpose really does this um, this group of mafiosos actually have anymore? Um, and and he's you know a hopeless failure in terms of the the instruction of his own family. Um, you know, with, with whom he's he's so distant spiritually from. Um, you know, I, I think that's probably the most interesting thing about that show. It's a good sort of character study in exactly the kind of things that we're talking about. Thank you for joining us, Rick. That's been an interesting discussion. Uh, now I'd like to thank everyone for listening. If you enjoyed this uh, podcast, please share it with your friends and family and subscribe to us on Podbean on YouTube. The more subscribers we get, the higher we get in the search rankings and the more people can access this material. And if you'd like to contact the show for any reason at all, please contact us at mindcryingliberty.show at gmail.com. That's mindcryingliberty.show at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.